This is Matthias Schlitter. I've been practicing that all week. It could have been embarrassing. Matthias Schlitter. And he is the 14 times world arm wrestling champion. And he has a distinct disadvantage. Because he has a genetic malformation that means his right hand is 40% bigger than his left hand. They call him Popeye. Because I guess that's what Popeye looks like if he only ate half a portion of spinach. And you have to say, if you were Matthias's opponent, you think this is a little bit unfair. He's almost like an X-Man with his huge right hand. What we're going to see today in Exodus chapters um, 6 to 10 is a cosmic mix, mi- mismatch. We're going to see God and Egypt engaged in a battle for hearts and minds. We're going to see incredible things. It's like the rumble in the jungle, the thriller in Manila, Rocky 1 to 6, all rolled into one. What we have before us is an unbelievable drama. As Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, does battle with Pharaoh, one of the gods considered by the Egyptians. It is a cosmic mismatch. You would take the odds on beating the German arm wrestler any day of the week. So if you've got a Bible, please turn to Exodus chapter 7 and we'll read verses 2 to 5. You should have also got a handout as you came in, which will be so useful to you. Exodus chapter 7 verse 2. You are to say everything I command you and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring up my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Here's the big theme of this morning. God will be God and everyone will know it. God will be God and everyone will know it. And so in chapter 7, just a little bit further down in verse 8, we come to like the weigh-in that you have before all good boxing matches. It's the sparring and the trash talk. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it before Pharaoh and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned the wise men and sorcerers. And the Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret acts. Each one threw down his staff and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. It's a bit of a sign um, of things to come. That Aaron's done um, a, a miraculous sign and the wise men and sorcerers have copied it. And Aaron's snake has swallowed All the other snakes. It's a bit of a sign of things to come. We can't actually read the whole account this morning. 
So please just turn to Exodus chapter 9. And we'll read about the plague of hail. Just to give us a bit of a flavor of how this is happening. Then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning. Confront Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. Or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people. So that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You still set yourself against my people and will not let them go. Therefore, at this time tomorrow, I will send the worst hailstorm that has ever fallen on Egypt from the day it was founded till now. Give an order now to bring your livestock and everything you have in the field to a place of shelter. Because the hail will fall on every person and animal that has not been brought in and is still out in the field, and they will die. Those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring the slaves and their livestock inside. But those who ignored the word of the Lord left their slaves and livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand towards the sky so that hail will fall all over Egypt, on people and animals and on everything growing in the fields of Egypt. When Moses stretched out his staff towards the sky, the Lord sent thunder and hail and lightning flashed down to the ground. So the Lord rained hail down on the land of Egypt. Hail fell and lightning flashed back and forth. It was the worst storm in all the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. Throughout Egypt, hail struck everything in the fields, both people and animals. It beat down everything growing in the fields and stripped every tree. The only place it did not hail was the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. This time I have sinned, he said to them. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord, for we have had enough thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't have to stay any longer. Moses replied, when I have out of the city, I will spread out my hands in prayer to the Lord. The thunder will stop and there will be no more hail. So you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But I know that you and your officials still do not fear the Lord. The flax and the barley were destroyed since the barley was in the air and the flax was in bloom. The wheat and the spelt, however, were not destroyed because they ripened later. When Moses left Pharaoh and went out of the city, he spread out his hands towards the Lord. The thunder and hail stopped and the rain no longer poured down on the land. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. So Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not let the Israelites go. Just as the Lord had said through Moses. I guess it is such a famous story, isn't it? These nine plagues. Um, We start a quite small scale with the staff that turns into a snake. We then move to blood and the river Nile becoming blood. And if you read it, it becomes really unpleasant because they don't have any water to drink, but also all the fish die. I don't know if you ever walk past a fishmonger on a Friday night, but the smell of all the fish that they've thrown away that they haven't been able to sell. Horrendous. Just imagine that's running down the middle of your city with dead Nemo all over the place. And then we get frogs. 
And this too is utterly disgusting. It says in the narrative that frogs will be absolutely everywhere. They'll be in your house. They'll be in your bedroom. They'll be on your bed. They'll be on your kneading troughs where you make the bread. And they'll be in your ovens where you cook the bread. I've got a really nice baker on Easter Road called the Manor House. Frog flavor is not on the menu. Not a great thing. France, perhaps. Easter Road, definitely not. And it gets to the point where they pile all the frogs up into massive piles. And if rotting fish is disgusting, rotting frogs, I dread to think. And for these first two plagues, the wise men and sorcerers in Egypt copy Moses. Now they call themselves wise men, but it doesn't seem very wise. The problem we have is too much blood in the rivers and lots of dead fish. Pharaoh, we've given you some more blood so there'll be more dead fish. Problem is we've got frogs everywhere. Do you know what? We've made some new ones. Really wise men. Just really unpleasant. And then we get the gnats, or um, you could translate it horsefly, but I like to think of it like midges. Because it reminds me of the Isle of Skye where I once had the most excruciating camping holiday you could ever imagine. Two of the three nights I slept in the car because I could bear it no longer. Just everywhere, swarms of the things. And then flies. You know how when a midgey bites you, there's a bit of blood? That's how you know you've been bitten by a midgey? And then just imagine that the flies come and they're all like on all your bites. And that horrible thing that is just like getting in there, just disgusting. Really unpleasant. And then round five, the cows get it. And the livestock, which in an agrarian society like Egypt, this is a real problem. If all your cows and sheep die. And then it starts to hit people. Festering boils. Not a big fan of the boil at the best of times, but a festering boil. That's like the worst kind. And then the hail that we read about. Like killer hail. We're not talking about when I did the Holyrood run round Edinburgh at the beginning of January and there was like little hail that was like being shot with a BB gun. This was like being hit with a rock, just coming down and coming down and wiping out everything. And then there were the locusts, just taking out everything that hadn't already been destroyed by the hail. And then darkness, absolute terror for three days. And what does the narrative say? Darkness that could be felt. Like that eerie, horrible, thick, tangible darkness and then round 10 comes which Kenny is going to tell us about next week and I guess what are we to make with about this is this just ammunition for the militant atheist to say yes truly God is vindictive and he does go on these tirades and afflict terrible pain on people Is it a slur campaign to stop people going on holiday to Egypt? Well, I have to say no. That the big point of this whole passage is that God will be God and everyone will know it. God will be God and everyone will know it. And I want to show you six really quick things to show you where I get this from. Here's the first. God is proving he is the Lord. God is proving he is the Lord. 
So helpful to have the text in front of you. Chapter 7, verse 17, this is what God says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile and it will be changed to blood. Chapter 8, verse 10. Moses replied, it will be as you say so that you may know there is no one like the Lord our God. Chapter 9, verse 14. Or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people so you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. God is saying, I'm the Lord. I'm in charge. I'm sovereign. There's no one like me. I'm utterly unique, completely distinct. No one like me. I'm in absolute control of absolutely everything and what I say happens and no one can stand against me. I am the grunt from Arsh. And before me, Pharaoh is just a poor, sniveling ruler. God is proving he's unequaled, unparalleled, undisputed, uniquely supreme. He's the sovereign soul, all-knowing and all-powerful ruler of all the earth. That's what he's communicating to Egypt and his people. Also, these aren't arbitrary acts. He's not just gone to his conjuring case and pulled out some interesting tricks. Every single one of these plagues is an attack on an Egyptian god. So Canum and Happy and Osiris are gods associated with the Nile. Uatik is god of the flies and Yahweh seems to control the flies, not Uatik. Nut is the god of the sky. Isis and Seth are god of agriculture and Shu is god of the weather, particularly hail. And yet it seems that Yahweh's got that completely at his beck and call. And that these gods are nothing but the um, invention of men. And then there's Ray and Amon Ray and Aten and Atom and Horus. All gods of the sun. And yet are completely powerless when God turns the lights out. Can do absolutely nothing. This is what God is saying about himself. I am God. And you all need to know it. God will be God, and everyone will know it. It's the second thing we see, that God is producing worshippers. It's probably the most famous line in the book of Exodus, where Moses repeatedly stands before Pharaoh and says, hopefully he said it with a bit more enthusiasm than that, because otherwise Pharaoh would never let them go. He says, let my people go, and that's where we think it stops. But every single time he says it, he follows it up with another phrase. Let my people go so that they may worship me. Let my people go so that they may worship me. Just look with me at chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, so that I may perform these signs of mine among them, that you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them, and that you may know that I'm the Lord. 
See, God is revealing himself to two sets of people. He's revealing himself to the Egyptians, saying that all your gods are completely useless compared to me. But he's also giving his people reasons to worship him. They've been in Egypt 400 years. They've never seen God act like this. And now they know that their God controls hail and frogs. He can turn off the sun whenever he wants. And they go, do you know what? He's real. And he's worth worshipping. I can't wait to get home and tell my children about this. And when they have children, the grandchildren. And we'll have family devotion times just worshipping God because he's awesome and unparalleled in all the earth. Do you see what God is saying? He's saying, God will be God. And everyone will know it. Everyone will know it. Israelites and Egyptians alike. There's also um, something really brilliant going on. That we see God is providing grace. God is providing grace. A plague four with the fly, something new happens. The Nile, blood, frogs, everywhere, midges, annoying. And then a um, plague four, something really different happens. Look at chapter 8, verse 22. But that day I will deal differently with the land of Goshen, where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there, so that you will know that I, the Lord... I'm in this land. Look at chapter 9, verse 4. Love the sound of rustling pages. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and that of Egypt, so that no animal belonging to the Israelites will die. Chapter 9, verse 26. Once you see these things, they're everywhere. The only place it did not hail was the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were chapter 10 verse 23 no one could see anyone else or move about for three days yet all the israelites had light in the places where they lived do you see how god is gracious to his people see how he makes a distinction that because they're his people they don't suffer these mighty acts of judgment that are coming on the land They're safe. He's looking out for them. They don't deserve it. We've already seen that they're a moany bunch of disbelieving quasi-Egyptians. But yet God is so gracious to them. He makes a distinction that his people are safe. And everyone else suffers pours out grace on undeserving people, saving them from judgment purely because they're his people. Incredible truth, isn't it? Judgment comes and God's people are safe. In Exodus, they're safe by being found in ethnic Israel. Today, you are safe when judgment comes fully and finally, not if you're an ethnic Israelite, But if by faith you've trusted the Lord Jesus. That is a sure and certain promise you can take to the bank every day of the week. 
And when judgment comes fully and finally, the only safe place is the Lord Jesus. I was really disappointed at Christmas because Rupert Murdoch bought all the rights to the film Elf, which is my absolute favourite film. And I love that bit when Santa comes to the department store. And what does Buddy the Elf say? Santa, I know him. That's what's held out to us in the Lord Jesus, that when judgment comes, we're not on the receiving end because we know God. And we've trusted his son. That's open to anyone who will come. God will be God and everyone will know it. Point number four. God is proclaiming sovereign power and mercy. Let's go back to chapter 9 verse 15. For by now I could have stretched out my hand. And struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. Do you see how God is merciful? That he's judging them, but he's not wiping them off the earth. His judgment is supposed to be corrective, not merely punitive. He is trying to address their view of who God is, that he really is the Lord. And therefore these judgments come and they're terrible, but they're not as bad as they could have been. Because he says, at the click of my fingers, I could have sent hail and Egypt would have been confined to the almanac of history. He relents from destroying Egypt. He gives them space for grace. It's like the parable of the wheat and tares where God allows both the wheat that is his and the tares that aren't his to grow up together without bringing final judgment so there might be real hope. Do you know what? We look out on our world and things are pretty bleak, but they're not as bad as they could have been. They're not as horrendous if God didn't have his restraining hand over the world, keeping it in check. He does this in four ways, I think. He gives us a conscience. Romans 2, so people aren't as bad as they could otherwise be. He's given us the Holy Spirit who convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Kind of amplifying that work of the conscience. The witness of the church, he says, is like salt and light in the world. And civil authority that we learnt about last Sunday night in Romans 13. God is restraining the world from being as bad as it could be in order to allow space for grace so that when final judgment comes, people will trust his son and find grace and safety. You see, this is what it's all about. God will be God. Everyone will know it. The key is, will we know it now? Will we trust it now? Will we turn to him now? Number five, we're nearly done. You've listened well. God is probing Pharaoh's heart. You could almost say that this whole passage is almost like a battle for one heart, Pharaoh's heart. There's lots of different ways that Pharaoh's heart is hardened. It says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. It says that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Three different ways going on, and in fact it says each of them four times. 
Puritans had this great phrase, the sun that melts the wax also hardens the clay. The more times we hear that God is God and everyone will know it, but we don't respond in repentance and faith and get with the program, we become resistant. And in Pharaoh's life, that resistance is built up to such a point. There's real urgency. Because your heart does become calcified and impenetrable. God will be God. And absolutely everyone will know. Last point and then we're done. God is provoked by false repentance. God is provoked by false repentance. Pharaoh is a classic case of what it means to repent wrongly, to be um, sorrow-filled but not turn to God. Let me give you these. Chapter 8, verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Do you see what? It was relief, not repentance. He wanted an easier life, but not God himself. So he doesn't turn to God. He just wants to turn away from his suffering. Relief, not repentance, is false repentance. We just want things slightly easier than they already are. Look at chapter 8, verse 25. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God here in the land. Verse 28, Pharaoh said, I will not let you go to offer sacrifices to the Lord your God in the wilderness, but you may not go very far. Now pray for me. Or chapter 10, verse 8. Then Moses and Aaron said, Then Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, Go worship the Lord your God, he said. But tell me who will be going. Moses answered, we will be going with our young and our old, with our sons and our daughters, and with our flocks and herds, because we are to celebrate a festival to the Lord. Pharaoh said, the Lord will be with you if I let you go, along with your women and children. Clearly you are bent on evil. No, let only the men go and worship the Lord. He's bargaining, not obeying. He's becoming convinced that God really is God, but rather than get with the program and turn to him, He says, let it be on my terms. Let it be only if it's how I want it to be, just a few men and a few women. And repentance is a call for unconditional surrender. And then chapter 9, verse 27. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. This time I have sinned, he said to them. The Lord is right. And I and my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord, for we have had enough thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't have to stay any longer. Verse 34, when Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. Last way to falsely repent, to confess, but to continue. To confess, but to continue. He says, surely I have sinned. So he's turning away from sin. 
But when it gets better, it's not a 180 turning to God. He simply just does a 360 and turns back to sin. False repentance. Relief, not repentance. Bargaining, not obeying. Confessing, but continuing. I wonder if that's true in your life. Stuff going on that you've not turned from to God. You keep it as a little pet. You feed it from time to time. I wonder if that's what God's saying to us this morning. Confess. Turn. Trust. Classic case is the prodigal son. He's in the field. What does it say? He got up from the slop of his life. And he turns around. And he goes home. That's what repentance is. Turning from sin to God. And anything that's not true repentance provokes God. Here's what we learned. God will be God. And everyone will know it. God will be God and everyone will know. What does this look like in life? Well, if you're a Christian here today, this morning perhaps it is that your worship for God has become dry and dusty. Maybe it's a case like the Egyptian, the Israelites had to, to remember what God had done for them. To remember how he had blessed them and blessed them and showed his mighty power in Egypt, that he gave them reasons to worship. Perhaps this week to um, not have dry and dusty and cerebral worship of God. Perhaps that's it, every morning just rehearse and remember everything that God has done for you. There's a passage on the back of the outline that will be so helpful from a guy called Jerry Bridges. Perhaps it is that God is a passenger in your life. You like having him around, but he's not really driving it. Perhaps today is the day to hand over the keys to your life. Perhaps there's stuff in your life that's habitual sin. Just keep feeding it. You've tried, but you've failed. Perhaps today you turn from it once and for all and ask for help from people around. But perhaps you're not a Christian. So great you're here. You have a little window into everything that we're about. God has and is revealing himself to us. He's done it in this passage. He's doing it all the time. He's showing you that he really is God and it's vital that you know it. He's done this most profoundly and poignantly in his son, the Lord Jesus. The one who is the image of the invisible God. Want to know what God is like? Look at the Lord Jesus. No, there's space for grace in the present. Space for grace. You're living and breathing today and that is an extension of God's grace to you. But one day judgment will come that will make these plagues in Egypt look like absolute child's play. When God rolls up history, brings everything to a close, and judges the world in righteousness and justice, there's only one safe place to be found, and that is having trusted Jesus with all of your life and your eventual death. Judgment will fall, and the one thing that will matter on that day is, do you know him? Do you know him? It says in the Psalms, today, if you harden your heart, today, if you hear his voice, 
Don't harden your hearts. Pray that would be true for each of us. Why don't we just have a minute silence? Let's just think about what God is calling us to do this morning as he declares into our lives, I am God. You must know it. There's that story, isn't there, of six blind men touching an elephant and they all have different impressions about what the elephant is like. One person touches the trunk and says it's like a snake. One person touches the tail and says it's like a rope. One person touches the stomach and says it's like a wall. It's a really interesting story, but there's three massive problems with it. As the narrator of the story, you're claiming to be the only one that can see fully, which is slightly arrogant, I think. The Hindu proverb is that this is like God. We've all got slightly different impressions of what he's like. And yet to say it's an elephant is a real problem because you're claiming to be the only one to see the whole picture. The second massive problem is if the elephant whispers to all six of them, Psst, by the way, I'm an elephant, then their own perception of the elephant is wholly wrong. Number three, if the elephant is a miracle-working elephant and miraculously gives them sight in order that they can see that it is an elephant, then to keep going in darkness is just utterly wrong and arrogant. Today, God has clearly revealed himself to us what he's like. He's shown us the God that he is. And he's held up for us the Lord Jesus whom he sent. And so to carry on in absolute darkness and do absolutely nothing about it, it's real arrogance. And it will be a real problem in the end. Let me pray. Father God, thank you. You're a God who speaks, who longs to be known, who is not far from any one of us. Father God, may each of us turn to you in repentance and faith this day and embrace your Son as Lord of lords and Lord of our lives. Father, we pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.